We're doing a series called King Me. And in this series, what we're looking at, uh, the theological term is eschatological authenticity. It's a fancy word that simply means living what we're going to be. So the Bible lays out that the believer in Jesus one day will rule and reign with him forever. It's throughout a lot of places. Revelation 22, four is a great one. So we're gonna one day rule and reign with, we're gonna be kings and queens. So if that is our destiny, then right now we should start walking that out and living like kings, like biblical kings and queens. So that's been the idea uh, that church sometimes can be like, you get saved, you come in here and then it's, okay, now what? Is this a place where we wait to die to go to heaven where life begins? No way. Um, that would be a bummer. This would be just a convalescent home. This is right now the staging ground, the proving ground for what we're going to be through all of eternity. So we kind of grab the text that defines a vocabulary is the way I look at it, of what it means to be a king or queen. Like we're supposed to be looking and adding these things to our lives. So if you would turn with me to the text we've been reading a bunch, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it kind of lays out the gospel, three and four. And then it also motivates us to move verses five through eight. His divine power, verse three, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort, that's us, because of the gospel, because we're partakers of the divine nature, because we've been given these promises, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You flourish. Jesus, thanks for a new year. Thanks for the snow. We're reminded that even if our faults and mistakes and blow it, even if they're a bloody mess, because of you, they become white as snow. Your forgiveness is that powerful. I pray that we would be continually fueled by that gospel, that good news, that we've been reconciled and adopted and brought into your family. And that fuel would cause us to begin to add to our lives these great qualities that help us flourish as humans. I pray in 2017, Lord, we would fly high. We would partake of your divine nature we would see these things added to us and we would flourish. So speak to us this morning. Help us on that journey, we pray, through your scripture. We pray this in your name, amen. 
So where we're at right now, we've done a bunch of these words. We're now on this term. It's translated brotherly affection. It's the Greek word Philadelphia. Perhaps you've heard of that city, the city of brotherly love. The interesting thing about the word Philadelphia, though, is it's a female noun. So it's translated brotherly affection, but it's actually a female noun. It's having a little bit of an identity crisis. Not sure what it's supposed to be. So it's more than just two guys liking each other. Literally, it is the appropriate affection between siblings. We all know what happens when it's not appropriate affection. We call that fighting. This is when your kids are doing and acting in a way that you say, that's awesome. Praise God, that's awesome. But because of its use throughout the Bible, it's actually expanded and it says, especially those who are in the family of God. So when you become a believer, the Bible says this, you are adopted and you become one family belonging to God the Father. And so all people of faith are your brothers and sisters. So it's more than just, hey, my sibling, it's those that are outside of that, those that believe in Jesus just like you do. And what we've decided to do in this study is not to go like a word search through the New Testament where Philadelphia is used. Uh, That's useful, but we're looking at examples. So it's not a theological treatment, it's more of an example treatment. And when I thought about brotherly affection and the examples in the Bible, there are so many of them. Moses with Joshua, Elijah with Elisha, David and Jonathan, Ebel Melech with Jeremiah, Paul and Timothy. You can go on and on and on. But today I don't want to look at a king, a guy. I want to look at a queen. Because there's one woman I think that exemplifies this better than anyone else. And her name is Ruth. So if you would turn your Bible to Ruth, as we see her kind of walk out what I think Philadelphia looks like. She does it really well. And while you're turning there, let me give you the background to where we're going to pick up the story. Here's what happens. There's a lady. She has a husband and two sons. She lives in Bethlehem. A famine hits Bethlehem. And she then, with her family, moves to a new city called Moab. She goes out to the Moabites and lives out there because there's economic opportunity out there. She can get a job. She can make, they can make some money, rather. He can get a job. So they move out there while they're in Moab. Here's what happens. Her husband dies. Her kids get married. Two sons get married, but then they both die as well. So she's left penniless, no connection to this place, Moab. And so she is about ready to to leave Moab and come back to Bethlehem to live there from that point on. So that's where we pick up our story. She is now talking to her two daughter-in-laws and telling Those daughter-in-laws, here's my plan. So Ruth 1 verse 8. And we're just going to look at kind of highlighting, we're not going to read the whole story. You should read the book of Ruth. It is a brilliant story. And by the way, we're going to have on our webpage, um, I want us to try to read through the Bible this year. So we're going to have on our webpage kind of this next text thing that says, here's what you should read this day. Because I'm convinced as believers, we should always be immersing ourselves in this story Because what you believe, what kind of narrative you believe really informs how you live. If you believe the wrong narrative, you live the wrong kind of life. And so the Bible just says, saturate yourself in this story because it will inform how you live your life. So Ruth 
brilliant story. So we're going to look at how she walks out brotherly affection. So number one, we're going to notice this. Brotherly affection has physical touch. Verse 8, chapter 1. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Number one, brotherly affection has physical touch. It says that Ruth clung to Naomi, grabbed a hold of her, hugged her, would not let go of her. If you don't know this, physical touch is extremely important to humans. The skin is the largest organism on your body. It has the majority of your nerve endings. Uh, memories go much deeper if they have touch with them. It's proven by science. And as a culture in America, if you, if you look at different cultures, Americans are not very physically affectionate. It's just not in our culture. And you'll notice this very often when you go to another culture where they're very different from us. So I've been to India five times. And in India, there's a different way that they do life. So you'll be driving down the road and it's not uncommon to see men holding hands, walking together, or like giving each other a hug and just walking together, hugging each other down the road. I mean, it's, it's, it's very often. And there were times, quite a few times, that I'd just be walking down the road with a group of Indian men and an Indian gentleman would come up behind me and he would just grab my hand and then I would be the guy walking down the road with another man holding hands. I learned very quickly in India to walk with my hands in my pockets. Even if it was 100 degrees out, I don't want to do that. It was awkward. But they're tapping into something. There is a need physically for us to touch each other. And there's lots of studies on this. The most, I guess, grievous one is what happened in Romania in the 1970s and 80s. There was a dictator that decided this, we're going to institutionalize factory-wise orphans. So he set up these orphanages that, yeah, they were fed, and yes, they were clean, and yes, they were warm, but they lacked physical touch. He said it didn't matter. It's just like science. We'll just do this. Well, in 1989, when he fell and people got into Romania, they started looking at these orphans and they were undersized. Their brains had not developed. They lacked pretty much everything that makes you, you and I human. And to this day, what's, what's 
really sad is they followed these orphans. Now they're 25, 35 years old. And most of them work for the secret police. And here's why, because they have no loyalty. Like the, make, the things that make people human, they lack because they did not have physical touch. All their needs were met. Oh, but we need to be touched. It's that, simple, that important. It leads to success. Here's my favorite study I read. It was on NBA teams. And they looked at an NBA team and they quantified how often the players touched each other. Fist bumps, high fives, hugs, chest bumps, all those things. What happens after one of your teammates misses a free throw? Is he shunned? Or do people go over and give him a hug, give him a fist bump, man, it's gonna be okay? Here's what they found. A better predictor of success for an NBA team was not the stars, not the salaries they got, it was how often they touched each other. That if they were a very touching kind of NBA team, most likely they would win that game. It's an amazing thing. It gives success. Now I know this already because of an incident that happened to me a long time ago. It was 1996, I don't actually remember it, but my wife does. And she says this to me, it was, it was before we were an item, maybe I should phrase it this way, before um, I was an item in her mind, but it, to me, the door was always open. I'm like, well, if just didn't, perhaps you might like me. So it was before she and I were an item, and I'm at church, and I'm just standing there. I didn't know she was there. And she came up behind me, and she just touched my arm. She goes, I've never forgot that. I tell her it's because it was the first time you touched the guns. <laughs> and they're powerful. They have that effect on you. <laughs> it's touch. Just touch has this incredible power to it. Naomi and Ruth, get this. Ruth clings to her. No, I'm not letting you go. So what does that mean for us as believers? Number one, it means this, don't be weird, okay? Don't be that person. I'll sick Chad on you. If you're gonna get weird, you're gonna talk to Chad. Don't be weird. But it does mean this, if you are married, there should be lots of physical touch. There should be holding hands. There should be hugs. There should be those things. There should be kisses. In fact, I have this study that says this, men who kiss their wives before they go off to church make on average $100,000 more a year. Now, I made up the 100 grand, but it's some kind of money. You make more <laughs> if you kiss your wife. I, don't, I couldn't find those studies, so I just made that number up, which I'll do very often, so don't check me. There's this, this something, you're just more successful, you're more human by the simple thing of touching people. Your kids. I mean, you should be hugging your kids and kissing your kids and touching your kids and all that. Even if they're the frigid 15, which all kids go through, you still just grab them. I don't care. I'm going to kiss you. I'm going to hug you because you need it, period. With friends at church, there should be the holy hug. We should be holy hugging. I still remember this doorkeeper who I really loved, really liked him. And one Sunday I came in and uh, he extended his hand to shake my hand. And I did the old, friends can't shake hands. Friends got a hug. And I just gave him a hug. And he looked at me and he said this. He said, now I can tell my wife you actually like me. I had always liked him, but it was a hug that cemented in his mind, oh, you do actually like me. We need to be those that push back against parts of our culture that are unhealthy. One of them is appropriate, right, physical affection. Ruth here, number one, clings to Naomi. Number two, she's persistent. This is perhaps 
one of the greatest statements in the Old Testament. It's one of those. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Isn't that brilliant? It's one of the most beautiful passages. Ruth is persistent. Uh Uh-uh. You will not get rid of me. You are not going to get, only, only death is going to part us. We live in an age now of real casual friendships where people have a thousand Facebook friends. What in the world does that mean? Right? You can unfriend people with a, with a click of a button. Now you're not my friend anymore. Well, what does that mean? Right? It's, it's really silly now. We have this, this lack of persistence, lack of any kind of quality like Ruth shows right here. It's sad to me. I think we need to be people, a people, that when it comes to our friendships, we're just like Ruth. You're not going to get rid of me. I'm like a tick. I will drive into you. You are not getting me out of you. I will continually be there for you because it matters. I'll give you an example. There's this Korean War vet, came back from the Korean War, a little bit traumatized by that, tries to become a priest, um, ends up kind of failing the priesthood. And then because of that, he starts struggling with alcoholism and descends down in a homeless, belligerent, just that, that path that some people tend to go towards. Really sad. And he probably would have stayed on that path, but he had one friend. And this one friend, every year on his birthday, would find him. Wherever he was at, sometimes it took a plane trip. Sometimes it took multiple days to find him. He would find him, bring him to a hotel, clean him up, get him in nice clothes. And then on his birthday, would take him out to a really good dinner. And at that dinner, this man would always say to his buddy, listen, I love you. And Jesus loves you. And God has something for you. Buddy, and I'm not going to give up on you. He did this year after year after year after year. And eventually it paid off because that homeless Korean vet has a name. It's Brennan Manning, who if you've read much Christian literature, you've read him. He's phenomenal. And he has blessed millions and millions of people all because one buddy said, I'm not giving up on you. Where you go, I go. I will find you because God has something for you. I love that kind of persistent friendship. Are there people that maybe you have been disconnected with? Maybe they've gone directions or made decisions that you don't approve of. And so you're just kind of like, well, you know, I'm just giving up on them. Maybe in 2017, God would call you to rekindle those relationships. Like a Brendan Manning. Like Jesus says, I'll leave the 99 and go after the one straggler, the one that's headed in all the wrong directions. I'm gonna pursue him and bring him, bring her back. Maybe that's what God's calling us to do. For me, this is just the, the essence of the gospel because that's what Jesus did for me. When I, when I was belligerent and anti-him, the Bible says this, 
while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He searched me and he grabbed me when I was my absolute worst because he is the persistent friend. Brotherly affection, it's physical, but it's even more than that, it's persistent. I'm not gonna give up, I'm gonna keep going for you. Number three, it's perceptive, it sees needs. Look at chapter two, verse two. They've now moved to Bethlehem, they've kind of got established, but there's a problem. Chapter two, verse two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. They're there in the home. Ruth and Naomi are together. And Ruth is looking around and the cupboards have no food in them and the fridge has no milk in it. And so she perceives there's a need here. And Naomi, you're really old, so you're not gonna be able to do it. So I'm going to. I'm gonna help you. You have a need, Naomi, that you cannot meet on your own. So I'm gonna do it for you. That's what friends do. That's brotherly affection. I'm perceiving that there's something in your life right now that's going to sink you. And if I don't help you, then it will do that. But together, we might be able to beat this thing. So about a week and a half ago, I think that's right, um, I had the privilege of sitting in on something that I'm gonna probably in time, it'll be top five of things that have happened at Edgewater for me. Um, there's a dear saint here that I love. And just recently she was diagnosed with ALS. If you don't know ALS, it's a brutal disease. The brain still works, so you still know everything up here, but the body is in absolute rebellion against your brain. So you know what you want to be doing, but your body does not obey you. So, so that's the real kind of hard part about it. You just still, you're like, oh. So she's diagnosed with this. Well, she has a friend. And this friend, guess what her name is? Ruth. <laughs> her, her name is Ruth. I mean, it's just epic. And Ruth says this. We, we sat down with them and Ruth says, you know what? You're my friend and ALS is too much for you. So I'm gonna take a 12 week leave of absence from my job, leave of absence from my job because I wanna walk with you through ALS. And she said, if necessary, I'll quit my job so I can full-time care for you as we walk together through ALS. I can't believe that. To me, this is stuff of legend, of books, of poetry. Like, oh man, it's brilliant what this lady is doing. It's, I perceive that you have a need and by yourself, this thing is gonna crush you, but maybe just maybe together, we can walk this way, walk this out in a way that's beautiful. Oh man, that's so right. I think it's been rightly said that a true friend walks in when the rest of the world walks out on you. Or Proverbs 17, seven puts it like this, that um, a friend loves at all times, especially the difficult times like that. I love that. Maybe there's somebody in your sphere, in your friendships, in your crew that needs help. Will you help them? In Galatians 6, 2, the New Testament puts it like this. If you see somebody overwhelmed with a burden, you that are spiritual, come alongside that person and help them. 
Jonathan Edwards, in his commentary on that text, says this, the true mark of maturity in a believer is the willingness to bear another person's burden, that you will be burdened by their burden. It's gonna cost me, but I'm okay with that. I'm gonna take 12 weeks off. I'm gonna take, I'm gonna quit my job. It's gonna cost me, but you are worth it. Well, Matt, why would I ever wanna do something like that? Because we live in a very selfish meistic culture, probably the most in history, where, where that's things like what Ruth is doing for her friend with ALS are just like, they're so profound because nobody does that. Man, how about we live in a world where that becomes the norm? We live in a culture where the church, this, that's just normal, man. You belong in a church, this is what happens. And I would love to live in that kind of a world. I think it's what, means, what it means to be truly human, that we're supposed to be this renewed humanity through the work of Jesus Christ, where that stuff just becomes the way that we are. Brotherly affection will give because we know you cannot. It's awesome. It's perceptive. You have a need, and if I can meet it, I certainly will. Now, I had quite a few more points, but my New Year's Day gift to you is I cut 15 minutes from my message this morning. So, oh no, there's two people that said that. That was it. <laughs> I'll still go long, don't worry. It just won't be that long. Uh, the, the other one is you read this, they have this incredible dialogue with each other. Brotherly affection means you're gonna talk. It's personal. And then lastly, you see Naomi at the end, Ruth has a, uh, a son and Naomi becomes the main babysitter. I'm gonna take care of this child for you. I love that. Reciprocating, babysitting. With seven kids at home, babysitting is awesome. It's such a great thing. Like every once in a while, if you know a family that has a lot of kids, just say, hey, we'll take your kids. Pizza night, go, have fun with each other. That's what Naomi does for Ruth. So there's all these brilliant ones, but I just wanna do one more. And then I wanna talk about us in 2017. So one more is this. Brotherly affection plans for their friends. Chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well for you? Naomi now looks at Ruth and says, I wanna help you. You need to get married. You need to have some kids. You need a future. And half of the book of Ruth is Naomi preparing the future for Ruth. Half this book, I wanna make sure you get married and you're taken care of. I wanna plan for your future. Brotherly affection looks at your friendships and has a plan for their future and helps them on it. Paul puts it this way, it's in Galatians 4. It's a chapter about friendships. Hey, you guys would pluck out your eyes for me. We're friends. And then Paul says this, here's my goal for you. I want to see Christ formed in you. I'm writing this book. I'm coming and visiting you. I'm asking you tough questions. At time, I'm really saying difficult things to you. Read chapter three. I'm doing all this. Why? Because I have a plan for your future and I want to see Christ formed in you. True friendships inside the church. Our goal should be that. Galatians 4.19. I want to see Christ formed in you. So like Naomi, it means asking difficult questions. Man, you get married to friends that are dating. You say, are you guys getting married? What are you doing right now? Because if you're just dating to date, stop it. Because you're dating someone else's spouse. 
Asking difficult questions like that. What's the goal here? What's your plan? What's your future? It's not just getting together for guacamole and, and tri-tip in a game. As fun as that might be, it's also asking good, hard questions of each other. But Matt, that's awkward. I don't want to do that. I'd rather not. I'd just rather have guacamole in a game. Why would I want to do that? I'm, I just finished a book called Messy. Not a Christian book. Interesting book. The end of the book ends like this. It's on this question. And it's talking about dating. That most people's first date are really boring. It's each side gives their sanitized biography. Here's what I'm going. And it's not like, man, that was an awesome date. It's more like, oh man, the date's over. Finally, I'm going home. Should I do it again with this guy? Should I do it again with this girl? I don't know about that. So the, the, most of them are, because it's real surface level, sanitized. There's not good questions asked. And then they went further. They did a test on some people, on friends. And they had people texting what they thought was their friend. But because we script so much of our conversations, so much as, man, how's your job? How's work? How's the weather? All right, goodbye. So much of our conversation is script. They just put a computer on the other side of the texting. So they didn't even know they were texting a computer, but the computer could answer with a script and they didn't even know it. Hey man, great chatting with you. <laughs> yeah, you talked with the computer. So, so much is scripted. Here's what they did. They took people on first dates and they had them ask these really, really hard questions. There's this guy, his name is Marcel Proust. And he came up with these, he's a French dude. He's not a Christian, but he came up with these 35 like questions to ask that actually probe deep and cause good conversations. And so these people on these dates, on their first date were forced to ask these really good questions. I'll give some of them to you. Like number one is this, um, what's your most treasured possession? Number two, what trait do you deplore in yourself the most? <laughs> well, the fact that I'm a mass murderer would be it. <laughs> Number three, um, what's your greatest regret in life? Number four, how would you like to die? Well, hopefully not by you. Um, <laughs> hopefully you're not that kind of person, but <laughs> like really good questions. And so they interviewed these people after their first date. How'd it go? We loved it. We loved it. They were hard, awkward questions, but we loved it because it actually felt like we were known and we got to know somebody. It felt like it was real, real relationship. And then they took this wedding where, you know how the wedding is like the, the bride and groom go off to get pictures, right? And they're told in like five minutes, they'll be back. Yeah, right. Five hours later, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so hungry. So they took that awkward time and they handed out these 35 questions and they just asked couples, hey, ask yourselves these questions. And one couple said this, in 10 minutes, we learned more about each other than we've known in 10 months. Because they're real questions. It's not scripted anymore. I think, I think really deep down, we want people to be planning for us and asking us those questions. Because sometimes we're almost afraid to ask them of ourselves. And we need that help from someone else to be like, dude, what are you doing? Hey, sweetie, what are you thinking? And that, that is so helpful. This is what Naomi does. Ruth, Ruth, what are you doing? Hey, I wanna plan for your future. I love it. So here's what I wanna talk about really quickly. When I think about brotherly affection, when I think about Ruth and Naomi, when I think about relationships, when I think about all this stuff, here's what I know. Our culture is on a landslide away from the book of Ruth. So every study you read, 
over the past 50 years, here's what has happened. We have exchanged floor space for friends. So we all live in bigger homes, but every single person has fewer friends. So we've got lots of stuff, but no connection to people. And it's, it's throughout every study you look at. We are by far the loneliest culture in the history of the world, America is. It's kind of sad. So I mentioned Dan Butner, the guy that uh, did the blue zone thing, people that live to be really old. Uh, there's five of them throughout the world. And I said that in that talk, something that fascinated me was this. He said, loneliness on a health index is equivalent to smoking 20 cigarettes a day. It's that unhealthy. That's how unhealthy loneliness is. And, and we should know that because in chapter two, page two of this book says this, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. Bro, it's like smoking a pack a day. You got to stop. I'm going to get you a wife. So we already know that, right? But I just read an article two weeks ago from the New York Times and you can Google it. It's called How Social Isolation is Killing Us. And this article just lists out the health problems from being lonely. Mm, just on and on, on. You're like, whoa, that's damaging. But here's the statistic that's truly bothering. Before the internet age, 20% of Americans said that they were lonely. That number has now doubled. 40% of Americans now say, I'm lonely. Just think about that statistic for a second. I mean, just generalizing right now, it means this. Either you or the person sitting next to you is lonely, right? We're just about at that level. Hopefully it's not your spouse because that would be a real bummer. That is incredible to me. And I think I've been harping on this for a while because I've, I've seen something coming. So about six years ago, I gave this, this statistic that looked at um, air conditioning and television in the South. Do you remember that? So if you weren't here, here's, here's what this study found. That air conditioning and television transformed the South. Before there was air conditioning, before there was TV, in the South, when a man would return from work, he would come home and his house would be super hot. So he would sit out on the front porch and he would drink tea and his kids would play in the front yard and the neighbors would come by and you'd sit and you'd gossip and talk. And there was, there was community right there. It would just happen naturally because the house was super hot. But then all of a sudden you introduce both TV and air conditioning. When the man returns home, where's the most comfortable place? inside, in his lazy boy, eating a TV dinner, watching television in the air-conditioned home. So they found that AC and television actually pulled the family out of community in the South. It transformed the way personal relationships happen in the South. And that, that's a bummer. But I said, I think the same thing is going to happen. It was called Web 2.0 back then. It meant this, user-uploaded content. So your YouTubes, your Instagrams, that kind of stuff. That what, what happened then is it pulls the individual out of the family now. So now you have the family inside with air conditioning, but now instead of watching TV together and like talking to their commercials, what do you do now? Everyone's just on their own device in their own little world. So they're not even a family anymore. You're not just isolated on this device away from your very family. It's crazy. Like as a pastor now, I never thought I'd give this kind of advice to families. Like, please watch TV together. Please at least talk at some point, but you know, put away the devices, watch TV together for crying out loud. It's crazy to me. But it's not just that. I said the very architecture of our homes have turned their back on community. So I grew up in a house built in 1908. 
1111 Southwest Foundry. It has this massive porch on it, like eight feet deep. And it's the, it's the width of the house, maybe 32, 40 feet wide. Just this big, massive front porch. Man, as kids, we hung out on that porch all the time. But you drive through any new subdivision, what do you see? There are no porches on houses, but they have this tiny, they're almost goofy because the houses are so big. <laughs> they're like these tiny little dinky uh, porches. I call them um, just big enough for two Mormon missionaries to try to convert you. That's the size of the porch. You can get a two or four Mormon missionary porch, right? But what's on the back of that home? Yeah, big deck, 5,500,000 square foot deck with what, an eight foot fence around it. Not to grow marijuana, but to keep people out. So it's like the very home has just said, nah, we're gonna do our thing, you guys stay away. And it's wrong. I think that the church has to be the voice that says, that's not what life is about. Life is not about turning your back on community. Life is not about these things. We have to be the beacon that offers hope and pushes against the 40% that are lonely. So in 2017, we're really gonna push community groups. And we feel that every single one of us should be involved in a community group that's offering these things that now our culture just turned its back on and they're unhealthy and they're hurting people and people are lonely and people are looking for avenues that are unhealthy very often to find connection. Where the church is, we should be the best equipped people in the world to say, come in here, be a part of us, be connected to us but Matt, that's going to cost me. Matt, that's going to take time. Matt, that's going to take effort. Totally. Totally will. But we come to the table right now. We come to the table and Jesus, in order to create this thing called the church, did it take effort? Did it take time? Did it take him quitting his job, if you would, in heaven and coming down as a servant? Absolutely. Jesus gave everything to create this thing called the church because he said, this is what matters. This is what's gonna transform the world. You guys, you guys right here, you're gonna transform the world. So yes, it'll take effort. And yes, it'll take time. And yes, it'll be awkward questions. But the results of it are brilliant. It's the church. It's this incredible instrument that can transform this world. So when you come and take the body and, Drink the cup. Here's what I would ask you to do, of one thing to do. The Bible says this, that when we eat this, we're all eating of one loaf. When we drink, we're all drinking of one cup. That doesn't mean that you have to be like, you know, high church where everybody drinks from one cup and you like, every once in a while you wipe off the germs. That's not the idea. The idea is this, we're all unified. We're all eating of the same thing. We're all drinking the same cup. We're, we're unified. We're one body. So for one body, we should be acting like it. We should be Ruth-like, persistent. We should be Ruth-like, perceptive. We should be Ruth-like, having a plan for people and asking good questions. We should be Ruth-like, physically affectionate. Man, I love you. We should be all these things because it's the beacon that this world is gonna need more than anything else. So in 2017, that's my hope and my prayer. So when you take communion today, simple prayer for you. Jesus, make us one. Because that was his prayer for us in John 17. Jesus, make us one. May we be the kind of church that the world needs. Jesus, make us one. And so Jesus. Community comes with so 
many pitfalls and problems and difficulties. But it's so powerful. And I pray that the enemy would not rip off the good seed of church and community and connectedness because of hurts or pains or unforgiveness. I pray that as we eat of your body, Lord, that you would strengthen our resolve in 2017 to be connected. I pray as we drink forgiveness, Lord, that we could be the kind of people that don't view others in their problems and their issues and their failures, but we'd be the kind of people that see them in their potential, like a Brennan Manning. We'd be that kind of people. And because we see potential, we'd be persistent because you've been persistent for us. So may we eat and may we drink unity, oneness, strength. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.